Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of talking true crime and healthcare, nursing, well, psychology this week, because this week we're going to be talking about a, a good cl- uh, school psychologist and a bad clinical psychologist. But uh, first, let's introduce our guest hosts this week, or how, how about our family hosts? Hey, Tom and Ben, welcome back. Always, always good to have you guys. You guys know this is Tom and Ben from the We'll Continue to Monitor podcast and from Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practice Nurses. Guys, we've got a really interesting show for you. This is, first of all, the the bad psychologist story. Oh my gosh. Trigger warning. It it involves some discussion or elements, I guess, of of self-harm. So just, I like to put that out there for people just to let you know. But before we get into the actual show, I do want to take just a, just a very brief moment. If you, if you want to skip ahead, like, you know, a few minutes, that's fine. But I just, I want to take a moment to just thank all of you who have responded so nicely to my request to give me a review on, on Apple Podcasts. And you guys are amazing because I did... Uh, I made a comment about some, someone who who gave me a one star review, and then it's my all time like, favorite review of it's, all. It's time. now Tom's. Yes, Tom loves it's, this. <laughs> like this is his favorite review. I I was so it hurt my feelings, and I was so upset about it that I came on here talking about it, and then you all responded so amazingly. I've got all, and I so I wanted to acknowledge all of you, and just read you know just very briefly read a couple of things just just to just to say thank you. I could not ever go through all of them because there are so many. But the one that Tom really, really, mm. really wants me to be sure and mention yeah. is the one that's one star, one star. and it says, oh, it's- horrible, <laughs> don't listen to this trash fire. <laughs> that's my favorite so, one. <laughs> that's Tom's favorite one. <laughs> horrible, don't listen to this trash fire. Oh, my Thank God. Thank you to whoever... <laughs> I mean, we, we, we got a really good one on one of ours. It was the most okayest <laughs> podcast. And I, I mean, I love that one too. Like I, nothing can ever take the place of most okayest because that was for us. But when you said horrible, I'm imagining a period. Was there punctuation? Horrible period? Or he or she or whatever. Put a comma. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this person, horrible, comma. Mm-hmm. Pause for effect. Yes, trash fire. Oh my <laughs> god! Don't listen to this. Oh, trash don't fire. listen to. I'm you guys, like... just so you know, t-shirts coming soon. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! <laughs> One it's so star. Great. Tom's like, you gotta have a t-shirt. So we were gonna do, we're gonna do like the t- the the stars, and like four of them will be empty, and one will be filled in. <laughs> and <laughs> horrible. Don't listen to this trash oh, fire. Great. I ca- I will wear that t-shirt well, everywhere. Yeah. I am so excited. That is fantastic. This is the thing we're gonna do. 
But I, so that is kind of what sparked the rest of these amazing people who came along and were like, hi, Tina. First of all, I, I said, if you don't want to say anything, you just say, hi, Tina. So then there's people like, hi, Tina, hi, Tina, hi, Tina. <laughs> I feel like, thank you so much. And it really does make my day when I get that. Someone from New, New Zealand, absolutely obsessed with this podcast. Thank you so much. Love, love, love. Look forward to the new episodes. Always shocked by the bad nurses. Thank you. Listened, started listening a year ago. Let's see, sorry, I'm trying to just kind of run through some of these. Addicted to this. Oh my gosh, that's so, y'all are, oh, Australia. Thank you, Australia. Love it. Love the show. Hi, Tina. Don't let the haters get you down. Look at all these five stars. <laughs> that was the, the last one that I got today. And I was like, oh, I, it's so true. The haters can't get me down if I have all these people holding me up, right? I mean, I just want to point so. out one little fact. You mm-hmm. mentioned several from New Zealand, Australia. Yeah. yeah. And where was Ben? Helping mm-hmm. out a oh. desperate population just stricken with chlamydia. That's right. Oh, my gosh. Ben, I forgot about that. Did you, did you have something to do with... So while you were while you're diminishing the spread of the sexually transmitted disease, you are helping the spread of my podcast. Is that what's happening? Yes, that's exactly what it was. You're uh, spreading the good word. I'm spreading the good word of good nurse, bad nurse, while trying to curb <laughs> chlamydia within the koala population. In so our we probably lost like half of the people now. They're they're all just like this is the dumbest stuff. And, and now I've got ten one star reviews. Thanks. <laughs> CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Well, I guess we can get started with this this bad psychologist story. We're going to start off in Henderson, Nevada, January 3rd in 2015. Around seven o'clock in the morning, law enforcement and medical personnel were called to a home due to an emergency. So when they got there, they discovered that Susan Winters was unresponsive and not breathing. Her husband, Gregory Dennis, informed the police that his wife had possibly consumed antidepressant medications and antifreeze. He was just really perplexed and confused, just wasn't sure. And that led to 
her being taken to a nearby hospital by medical professionals. And then unfortunately, she was declared dead after being treated. She was 48 years old. Susan, just to give you a little bit of background about her, she was she completed her education at the University of Oklahoma. She went on to become a lawyer. She landed a position with the Clark County District Attorney's Office in Las Vegas in the 1990s. She, of course, would, would end up getting married and then had two daughters. She was also eventually appointed as a part-time judge, so quite an accomplished woman. Her husband, Gregory Brent Dennis, was a psychologist graduated from the University of Tulsa, where he played football as a defensive back in the early 80s. He was apparently quite a star football player. He had a PhD and was licensed to practice psychology in the state of Nevada. So that kind of gets us started to establish who he is and who, who Susan was. But they seem like two very well put together, determined, you know, yeah. good career paths. I mean, what could go mm -hmm. wrong? I know. Well, if we haven't learned anything from this podcast over the past several years, it's that there really are no boundaries when it comes to the things that people can people do, whether on purpose or by accident or that people, it really isn't about the socioeconomic status. People do bad things and it, uh, you know, it does, it, it, it reaches all levels and all different types of people. So the coroner's office, Ben, so if, if you guys don't know, Ben is our resident coroner. He's, I keep him on staff at all times. I'm for yes. I'm retainer for all of my coroner needs. <laughs> if, I have, if I have a question, not not that I have dead bodies I need him to look at, but yeah. I'm just being, I, oh gosh, no, I don't know why I said that. Anyway, <laughs> I've completely gone off the deep end. I have not had enough sleep, okay? So Ben, our resident coroner, this coroner's office determined that Susan actually took her own life by taking a combination of prescription pain medication and also drinking antifreeze. I mean, what do you think about that? So the basis of this is likely going to be related to an interview with a deputy coroner or a death investigator that was on scene along with reports from law enforcement, the hospitals, things of that nature. And so, I mean, if the story was consistently, hey, she had made suicidal thoughts, hey, she had taken this prescription pain medication, and they were able to find that in her system, and then they were able to find the antifreeze in her system, then by putting everything together, you make that determination that it was a suicide. Okay. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So she and her husband were married for 19 years. And as I said earlier, they had two daughters together. Susan's parents were not so convinced that her death was from her taking her own life. They owned multiple sonic drive-ins in Oklahoma City and were quite wealthy. They suspected that Dennis murdered their daughter for the financial benefits because she she apparently was, I, I don't know how this works, but she was supposed to inherit some money. Um, but also there was a $2 million life insurance policy. Yeah, I wasn't able to ever find out exactly what they said. I mean, I looked a little bit while we were talking and all it really said was that she was set to inherit it and that they had the life insurance policy. So I'm not sure if it was like some kind of trust that she was able to pull money from and that by being married, mm. he then had access to, I, okay. it was never clear, but what was certain is her parents were very wealthy and mm -hmm. she was not hurting for money. So maybe there was money that she, it was in her name. She had I would assume so. some access to it, but not, but, and then 
he would have. Yes, by law, he, he should have then okay. had access to it as well. So yeah, that does make sense. Well, they decided to hire a private investigator to basically look into this and see if maybe there was something else going on. They also urged law enforcement to reconsider opening the case. And and I would imagine that would be frustrating as a family member if you really believe that there's no way your loved one took their own life and then the police came along, coroner came along and said, nope, this, she took her own life and then closed it. So you know they're not looking anymore. They're not, they're not even thinking about it. They've moved on to other things. So there's no hope of justice. There's no hope of anything ever coming to light. And so I can see why they, they tried to kind of take this into their own hands and, and kind of do their own investigation, you know? Yeah. And I would say most people don't want to accept, you know, a loved one would hurt themselves. However, one thing that was never clearly laid out or again, that I wasn't able to find was, was there a reason why they suspected him other than the death itself? Clearly she was, you know, there was no reports of her being depressed or, I mean, obviously there was some Mm -hmm. depression. She had antidepressants in the house, but there was no reports of ill health, changes in mental status, no reports of our, our allegations of abuse. So I wasn't really sure other than money, Mm -hmm. what reason they thought And then for the police to reopen the investigation, clearly evidence was found. Like, we don't just reopen investigations. I shouldn't say they don't just reopen investigations, especially ones that already have a finding from a coroner and everything. So there must have been some significant information that was brought forward. I I just was never able to ascertain exactly what it was that it was. But certainly it must have been big. I think her brother, it was her brother that I, I saw in one interview who said that he knew immediately when he, when he was told that she she was dead, he did not have to be, to be told he he before he was ever told what the ruling was. He asked, "What did Dennis? What did uh, Gregory do?" He he immediately assumed that he had something to do with. I it. would say then that there probably was suspicion within the family that there was mm-hmm. something bad, Wh- whether it was physical or mental abuse, whether it was just rocky financial situation, whatever. Clearly, the family had some kind of reason to be suspicious, if that's what the brother's first thought was. Yeah, I I think so, too. Well, two years later, and I'm sure that was a very long time for her family, there was a surprising turn of events. Dennis would eventually be charged with murder by a grand jury because after investigating further, the police did believe that she died by manual asphyxiation. And we were talking about this before the show as we were kind of going over the notes because we were like, wait, that doesn't kind of go along with manual asphyxiation. You think of like strangulation, ligature or, or your hands or or something. Clear, clear evidence. Maybe not necessary. Yeah. Particular hemorrhaging, you know, the telltale signs, uh, bruising around the throat, and with things that you would think would be obvious to a coroner. And so there had to have been somehow it must have not been obvious. But we were talking about if someone had been given medications like opioids that would uh, depress your respiratory rate. So, you know, you're breathing like really, really slow because you have this excessive amount of opioids in your system, that it would be easier to maybe, for example, uh, put a pillow over someone's face just block the airway, basically. And one of the other things I, I was confused about at first was the antifreeze because the biggest thing mm-hmm. it's going to do in the cause of death is nephrotoxicity or kill your kidneys. 
but it will have a much quicker or more immediate effect on your central nervous system. So mm -hmm. there is the possibility that probably helped depress that respiratory drive further. And okay. it is a very sweet, odorless, you know, chemical, the ethylene glycol, which is what's in the antifreeze that kills you. So he could have just maybe mixed that in if she was drinking something like wine or something like that. There, there's a million ways you could have probably slipped that sweet substance into something without her wow. knowing. So, I mean, it's accidentally and ingested by animals and kids every year, like all the time, because it is sweet. So there isn't an instantaneous, like, get this out of my mouth for some brands. I do believe that there are some that are coming up with, like, safe versions with, got like, a bitter yeah. agent. But there, mm -hmm. there is likely still multiple brands out there with the unsafe factors in them, so... It, it is it is an issue, but it's not it's it's likely what helped contribute to her death in this case. That's the only reason I can assume, because otherwise I was like, that would take days. So yeah. why? So that's probably why he added that into it. Oh, and like we were talking pre-show during just my little preliminary investigation. And with this, anytime that we send a person off for autopsy, and we get that autopsy report at the bottom of the report. It does say, you know, that this pathologist findings are based on the facts that they know at that time and they reserve the right to change their uh, opinion based on new facts that may arise. And this case, it was originally ruled a suicide after new information came to light and they didn't ever delve into what that information was between the police department and the coroner's office. They changed her uh, manner of death from Suicide to undetermined. Basically just saying that we can't definitively say what caused her death other than the, the fact that she has passed away and that she did have these things in her system. Um, and so then, you know, I did look up the Nevada statute for manual strangulation, and it is, you know, intentionally impeding the normal breathing or circulation of the blood by applying pressure on the throat or neck or by blocking the nose or mouth of another person in a manner that creates um, a risk of death or substantial bodily harm. And so, you know, if, if her respiratory rate was already depressed from opioids and the antifreeze, very easily could have placed his hand over her mouth and nose, not enough to cause enough bruising or injury to see that on an autopsy, but still could have impeded the airway. The other thing I thought of just now, positional asphyxiation. So if he had just lifted her head enough to cut off her airway, he could have manually strangulated her per the charges and not left any evidence. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. The recent EMS workers that had put the the man on a on a stretcher face down, like just let him like fall. Yeah, I'd seen that. Oh, it, 
Oh my goodness. It's terrible. It really is. It's frightening. It's, it's so disturbing and, it, and it's absolutely shocking that people who are supposed to be healthcare providers who are supposed to be coming to someone's aid in an emergency situation could be so callous and cruel. So they, they, they basically, he is withdrawing from, and I know this is a little bit of an aside, but it's just so, it bothers me so much, but he's, was withdrawing from alcohol, which obviously can, well, I wouldn't say obviously, it can make you confused as just one of the symptoms that you can have. And so they came to pick him up and the EMS workers just had no compassion for him, made him walk to the, the stretcher. And then he he somehow managed to get on the stretcher, but face down, and they strapped him in. I mean, tight, mm. strapped him into that stretcher, like face down, like f- his face was literally yeah. down on the stretcher. And he died. He was dead by the time he got to the hospital. So one of the things that they're trying to be more aware of in police work is the positional asphyxia from the arrest position. So anytime they have mm. their hands behind their back, you don't want to lay them directly on their stomach or chest. Especially if they're a large person, it makes it almost impossible for them to breathe on a, on a consistent basis, causing this asphyxiation. So there's lots of ways that this can be managed. As a matter of fact, we talked about a couple other ones pre-show that they could have done that. So, yeah, if her, if her respiratory drive was down low, a pillow, a hand, a little bit of force – it wouldn't take much to uh, to finish, and then you wouldn't. A coroner wouldn't necessarily take one look at at them, and correct, you know, especially with the auto uh, the uh, toxicology results, right? Yeah, especially when it says the things that they are expecting, you wouldn't be too, yeah, you know, overly concerned if you're expecting it. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting that he said antifreeze because it's almost like he didn't try to hide it because he knew that they would be looking for that. So he made it seem like she did it on purpose. Yeah. And again, that goes back to I would like to really know what that initial statement was, because some of the Mm -hmm. general wording you see are the benign things you'd see in any report. You know, if a person doesn't know exactly what happened, the word may is going to get used. The Mm -hmm. person's reporting she may have ingested antifreeze. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how exactly he tried to explain this or how Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say how he tried to explain it because I wasn't there. How he explained it to the cops. That would probably be very yeah. telling to see How what wording out? instead of just the general stuff we get to see in the report when it comes yeah. out to the public. So it would it would be interesting. Well, then in February of 2017, they did take him into custody during a traffic stop near his residence. He was charged with murder with a lethal weapon. And according to the police reports, he had been abusing cocaine and prescription drugs before his arrest. So in 2022, he agreed to a plea deal. So the 59-year-old psychologist admitted to using a combination of prescription painkillers and antifreeze to poison his wife. And so in the the agreement with the prosecutors, he faced a sentence of three to 10 years in jail. The case was originally going to go to trial, and then the whole pandemic happened, and it got put off. And then he ended up entering an Alford plea, which means he's not saying he's guilty. He's not saying he did it. But he's saying that prosecutors have enough evidence that they could prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's like, it's almost like a, a tie. It's like, I know, I realize you have enough evidence that a jury could definitely convict me. But then the prosecution is like, 
I realize I have that. And at the same time, juries are juries and they could still. So we don't want you to completely go free. He's thinking, I don't really want to get, you know. Murdered in jail. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the death 20 sentence. years, yeah, and, exactly. you yeah. know, life, whatever. So he doesn't want to get this excessive sentence. So let's meet somewhere in the middle. I'll just do this Alford plea. And he would have a maximum of 10 years in prison for killing his wife. Case actually split Susan Winter's family and the Dennis family, Dennis and the couple's daughter. So their daughters actually believe that she took her own life, which I thought was interesting because they were teenagers by the time this, ha- yeah. this happened. They were old enough to kind of so they know were around. Yeah. her mental state, what's, you know, what. That is really interesting. It makes mm-hmm. you wonder. I thought it was interesting yeah, too. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. So I guess that's why I wanted to say that earlier. I shouldn't make it. I shouldn't say things that are framing him in a guilty looking light. I wasn't there, but you have to admit that is a very odd set of I circumstances. I mean, he said something that framed him in a guilty yeah. light. He, 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 oh, yeah, entered a pl- an and Alfred plea. plea. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, saying you I'm know. guilty without acknowledging I'm guilty does seem bad. Mm-hmm. But like you said, when her own daughters are saying, no, I believe mom hurt herself, I know. that. It gives me pause. Yeah. It, it does. I mean, but but, but it, it's hard for me to imagine this highly educated woman would deliberately drink antifreeze as a means of taking her own life. I just have a hard time with that. Why would that be anywhere in the equation? I I have a harder time with if he took the Alfred plea and he's acknowledging that there's evidence and there's clearly other stuff we don't know that we're never going to know. So that's what makes me think it must be true that he was not two daughters that are willing to go on the stand and and testify that they think their own mother took their life is a powerful tool for a defense attorney. They must have had something (laughs) big enough to go over that. And so whatever it is must have been pretty big. And I'm sure his attorney said, this is 10 years. You're going to get life if you don't take it, take it. I'm sure that's what the the mm-hmm. conversation was. So whatever this evidence is that we don't have access to must have been very damning. But I can't lie. There is a major mental pause when family members that live in the house with them are saying, no, there were issues. Like I could see yeah. this. And so that makes it very hard for me to, yeah. to make this story work like it's just like because you would think that they would know they would know if if i don't know it's it's it it does it definitely it bothers me and and the problem is is with it now being over and in the manner with the Mm -hmm. deal i bet you everything's sealed so Mm -hmm. i i highly doubt we will ever find out the entire story legally about what happened so i wonder if the family knows the you know if the daughters even know the extent of of all of the the evidence that's out there well, that's a, that's an awfully good question, but I mean, it just, it is a, it's a story that honestly, I wish there was more info on because this seems like the type of story that there's a lot more turns. We just don't know what they are. Yeah, it does seem odd. Now, the fact that her, her family was so suspicious, yeah. you know. That's what I'm saying. But her immediate, her own daughters weren't. I mean, that's a very. Yeah. And I will say, you know. Children, I have grown children, and I think that um, children don't know everything about their about their parents. You know, you don't reveal everything to to your children. So, 
sometimes you keep things from them because you want to protect them. You want them to kind of maintain their innocence. You don't want to pull them into all of the dark stuff. Any of the, you know, you just, not everyone does this. I know not all parents do this, but I think there are some parents who try to keep a little bit of a wall between the, the, the things that maybe they're going through, the dark stuff that they might be going through and their, and their children, because they don't want to, they don't want to influence them. They don't want to taint their childhood. They want, I don't know. It's like they want to keep this facade up. And if that was the case, I'm, it would be really difficult for, for children who really love their father to ed, to accept that he would do something like that. And that, you know, and that is a very good point. I mean, that is a very possible side of this coin. I just, the whole story is pretty fascinating it just seems like something we should continue to monitor and maybe in the future there would be some other information to do about this show. Ben, what do you think about stuff like that? Creepy stories with lots of twists and turns and facts come out later. Okay, I don't know. You know nothing neither. about nothing. that. You know nothing, nothing. about That's that. horrible. Nothing. I would not listen to a podcast like that. That would be a trash fire. So Horrible trash Horrible actually, trash fires. I was actually reading. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, about horrible trash fires because okay so i was kind of reading some of the grand jury stuff on on this case and the death investigator that originally pronounced miss winters and sent her up for autopsy was shortly after this case was uh relieved of duty due to poor job skills and the pathologist oh, yeah, not helping It says, after receiving her investigative report and conducting the autopsy, the pathologist concluded that her death was a consumption of the lethal combination of prescription painkillers and antifreeze. And they said that, of course, the manner of death was suicide, but they were basing it off of the death investigator's report. And so there's back and forth in the deposition of um, this woman. And then I was reading some of the deposition of the detective in this case. And the death investigator acknowledged under oath that she did little to challenge assertions made by the husband, um, spent less than two hours investigating the death, mostly at the hospital. And the basis of the detectives being feeling comfortable closing the case was based off of her report of her interviewing their daughter saying and her daughter saying that she was suicidal as well. So the daughter just flat Ooh. said she was suicidal. Oh, wow. Um, they said that Chad Mitchell, who's the former Henderson detective, testified in his own deposition in the civil case that he relied on, in part on this death investigator's interview with one of the couple's daughters in deciding to wrap up his in, in original investigation. He said the interview had corroborated Dennis's contention that Winters was suicidal. When presented with some circumstantial evidence collected by attorneys for the Winters family, he started to question his decision to close the case. Um, he said he was unaware that uh, days after the death, he had cashed a $180,000 check. And the detectives also did not collect his phone records around the time of his wife's death. And some other things that made them think that they needed to reopen this case. So, I mean, just some interesting tidbits that are kind of thrown into it that. And you know what? Another thing, the thing is. This could be a situation where he had a lot of things going on in his life that he was participating in, that he was doing, that were 
that were not good. Some illegal things, unethical things, some immoral things. Some, and who knows, that could have de- very well contributed if she knew about these things that could have contributed to her depression, her struggle with the you know thoughts of taking her own life. And if that was going on, and if she did decide to take her take her own life, then they go and start looking, they start unearthing all of this stuff, and they find these things, you could definitely put all these things together and make a case for, oh, he, he probably, he probably killed her to make it look like a suicide. Because look at all the stuff he was doing. Or you it, it's like it's you literally could build the case yeah. either way. But I, I, no matter what case you build, I feel there's any decent defense attorney is going to be able to throw a big enough wrench in there to cause a reasonable mm-hmm. doubt. I mean, that daughter which statement alone. Hence the Alfred plate, yeah. which is exactly, exactly. why. It's all yeah. it's it's kind of a stalemate. It really is. Yeah. And, and I, it makes sense. But boy, mm-hmm. that's a crappy makes sense. I mean, yeah. it just. Mm, mm. Yeah. And I, I do. Because the thing is, if if she really did drink antifreeze. And take take that an you know, as a means of killing herself. Um, then he's yeah he's sitting in jail because he had a substance use disorder problem and you know some other some other issues, but not not because he and, actually yeah. so his wife yeah. Like I said, crappy. I, it's crappy both ways. Mm-hmm. So it is. It really is. So he did. Uh, he was sentenced to three to ten years. Um, so it's a maximum of ten years. He said that he accepted the plea bargain to prevent his family from having to, quote, undergo the stresses of a trial. Mm, no. Which I do to that. I mean, something I do understand. You say, Tom, you're going to go to jail for 10 years for a crime you didn't commit, so I don't have to be sad. Nah, you're going to be real sad. Okay, <laughs> we're going to be yeah, real but I mean, sad. On the flip side, though, if you have this family has already been torn apart, the daughters are obviously siding with the dad. I mean, so you're going to start dredging up a bunch of stuff you're going to subject your daughters to not only examination from your attorneys on the stand but also cross-examination which as you know cross-examination can be very traumatic yeah cross-examination is not pleasant one thing though i would say honestly though i think you two are both half right from what it sounds like to me like i think that there was stuff are you calling us half wits no hey if the shoe fit don't wear it i guess i don't know so what I'm saying, though, is she's got a good point. Maybe he was doing some stuff on the side, right? Maybe the point of the trial or what was going to come out in the trial wouldn't be blasting her. He didn't want to air his dirty laundry. Like, he's thinking, I'm only going to be in jail three to ten years. I get out in five years. I can't afford to have all this information out there. But if I just plead guilty, it's sealed. Nobody ever knows about it. I get to move out with the rest of my life. I mean, you know, there's the other thing that the prosecutor said that he had conducted internet searches to find out how long it would take to uh, ethylene glycol, which is the it's in antifreeze would kill it would take to kill a person. Just saying. I mean, that's that's also bad. I mean, if he conducted that right. Yeah. But that also, you know, computers are funny because like, did he do that or is was that on like the family computer? My husband will log into my Gmail to to because he'll be trying to log into an account and it'll be like sending a code and it'll send it send the code so that like the dual verification. So then he will log into my Gmail to get the verification. So then he'll still be logged into my Gmail. And I was just happened to be looking at my Google account and it said it like sends you this thing that's like 
here, you want to see where you've been? And it said I was somewhere and I was like, I haven't been there. What the heck? <laughs> yeah. No. I was so confused. And then I realized, oh, Mark went there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing thinks that's me because he signed in. So, and that's on his phone. That's on his phone. You know, so I feel like, I don't know how reliable it is. Like, did she search it? Was she looking it up? But if she had, would she have drunk the antifreeze? Because it is a terrible, terrible way yeah. for you to try to kill yourself quickly. Yeah. It just doesn't doesn't work. So it, it, it's just one of those things that I would assume, again, that they have some defining evidence, like a reason why they think it was him. Because as you just pointed out, there's several very easy explanations. And I'm assuming his defense attorney <laughs> attempted to try them. And they're like, no, this is why we know. So, but But we don't know. And that's the point is without that information, who knows? Maybe maybe it was a weird situation because, like you said, we have Google accounts at my house as well. So my wife has, you know, I've been looking at stuff on it, the laptop and mm-hmm. like this isn't what I had open earlier, but it's because she yeah. signed in. So I, I can completely see stuff like that happening, but I would be very honest. It, I just I it's hard for me to go. I'm going to spend 10 years of my life in jail for a murder. I didn't con- you know commit. It, it does happen. Police do, or not police, but people do admit to the police uh, false commission, false commissions. Good Lord. False confessions all the time. So it does happen. It's not as rare as people might think, but it is still something. I, it's just very hard for me to assume a guy who was a Division One football player, a PhD, a practicing psychologist. I mean, this is not a guy who, you know, should be tiptoeing any lines like he shouldn't be having this many problems in his life something led him down this path he he didn't end up there on accident so it's a it's a heck of a case i really wish there was more information out well i guess that kind of wraps it up for this bad psychologist story thank you guys so i have to tell you guys about an experience i had with a nursing student so you know i've been doing travel nursing well this hospital where i'm at has a lot of lpn students doing their clinicals there So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order.
Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. For the good nurse portion, we have a school psychologist and so it's a little different for me. I, I, I've done some psychologist episodes because I, I do believe that, that the brain and the psyche and all of that is obviously it's medical. It's, I think that we separate the two too often and it should be all incorporated instead of separated. So I'm really excited to get to do this interview because for one thing, somebody that's very special to me and, and to my husband that I really hold in very high esteem. And I think you guys are going to be really, really impressed with him. But also the subject matter is so important. It is not talked about enough. And he is an absolute expert on it. So I'm really, really excited to get to delve into the topic of dyslexia. And from somebody who not only is an expert in the subject, but is somebody who has struggled with it for his entire childhood and his entire life and has learned to overcome it, which is amazing. So Mike, first of all, I'd like to just talk about you and who you are and start off with, I feel like there probably are, I think everybody's familiar with the term dyslexia, but I don't know that everyone has the right understanding of what it is. And just through knowing you through Mark and reading a lot of the things that you've, you've written and, and hearing you talk about it, I've learned a lot that I didn't know before. So I'd like for you to share um, your experience with dyslexia and what it really is so people can get a really good understanding of what what it is to be dyslexic or to, to have dyslexia and that sort of thing. Okay, glad to do that. Yeah, I'm glad to be here with you, Ben and Tina. Well, the, the definition of dyslexia is basically an unexpected inability to read when all other conditions say that the person ought to be able to read. That's kind of a base, the basic definition. The main thing that causes problems for people with dyslexia is inability to sound out and spell words fluently. People can learn how to sound out words, but they can't do it fluently. So the, probably the biggest misunderstanding is that it, it is not a reading problem. This is not many people are going to say this to you, but I will. It's not a reading problem. It's a sounding out words problem. It's a inability to take the, the print word and make it say itself. And also inability to put words in print by spelling. So People with dyslexia, typically, I say one of the things I say is they have an innate talent for reading because they have good language. When they hear words, they recognize the words. They know the meaning of words. They know how to put words together with other words to give more meaning and then how to put a bunch of words together to have a, an idea and how to, when they hear those words repeatedly, they can process them quickly, auditorily by listening. So that's 
my view of dyslexia, which and, and I think the main emphasis is that we need to understand the true nature of dyslexia, and that's the true nature of dyslexia. All right. I think that that, that there is, has been a misconception by a lot of people, and maybe it is, maybe, you know, we're, we're not all exactly the same, so I, I, would, I would imagine there are people who maybe have different experiences to an extent, but when, it, when you boil it all down, as you said, it is the, it, it's someone have, having a difficult time with looking at a word on, on paper and ha- having that word translate into something meaningful in their brain. Yes, Does that make does. sense? That's, that's it. <laughs> okay. For whatever reason, and some people say, well, the, the letters look backwards to me, or, you know, they have different ways of describing what, it, what happens but when it comes right down to it, no matter what it is, they just they see the word on the page and it doesn't as easily for most people, it doesn't just automatically absorb into their brain and, and process right away. It, it's it's they have to really sit there and think hard about it. And you just aren't going to be able to if you're expected to read fluently in a school setting, you're never going to be able to keep up with your peers if they're able to just sit there and absorb it all like a sponge. And, and you and your brain doesn't work that way, then you're going to be sitting there struggling the whole time. Whereas if you had a, a way of if there was a way of teaching this person in, a, in an auditory way, so that they can hear instead of having to read and absorb off the paper, they can hear it. And then immediately they know exactly what's going on. The words can talk. So is there a, a, is it a blanket term for dyslexia? Are there different types of dyslexia? Is it different for everybody? Or how does that kind of pan out? Well, I don't have the definition in front of me. It was what I've described to you, but it's a inability to process language at the word level. That's the, I don't know about different variants. There's, but generally that what I described covers, I think the last, I think it's 80% of the people in special education have dyslexia. And of course, there's a whole, nowadays, we're getting more and more undiagnosed people with dyslexia, people who, who struggle to spell, who, who struggle to read quickly and easily. And, and uh, Tina, what you said there about being in the classroom where, where others can do it easily, <laughs> that rings a bell <laughs> when you can't do it easily. And, and, you know, there's a there's a toll when a student is in the classroom day after day struggling to do what everybody else can do easily. Um, but that's the situation too often is that we don't use the accommodations that are available. And that's reading by listening. That's what I am working for is to help people realize that their student could be moving from struggling in class to being at the top of the class. If they were, if they take care of those two problems I described, sounding out words and spelling words, and there's a way to do that using assistive technology systems. Actually, it's, it's, I spoke to a group recently and I was saying it's not new technology. It's old technology because I said, how many of you in the room have popped your phone out and and dictated a text message instead of typing it? And the hands went up. I said, you know, that's writing by speak. Then I said, well, how many of you in the room have read an audible book or listened to an email? And the hands went up again. I said, that's reading by listening. 
but we're having a problem because we're not seeing that that's what students in the in in school need to be doing to to get them so they know everything that's been been covered in class we're quick to do that with people that need braille nobody hesitates and says well you know maybe let's let him let's let him practice some more before we start him on braille that's an excellent point yeah, it's it's a, it seems oftentimes in our society, if if, if there is a, a barrier, a challenge, a disability, whatever you want to call it, but you can't see it, you can't actually see it, that people don't want to acknowledge it exists, or they want to think that you can somehow overcome it. And you can just think your way out of it or practice your way out of it. We we see that a lot of times with mental health issues, with depression and anxiety. And people who don't struggle with those things will just think that people who do can just tell yourself to be happy or, you know, just tell yourself not to be anxious. And you just that, that it's it's like not understanding that there there is a physiological thing that's happening within your body and within your brain. And so with dyslexia and with lots of these types of disorders, because they're different types, there are auditory processing disorders, which is almost the opposite of that, where someone, you can talk to them and it, it comes out of your mouth. And by the time it gets into their brain, it's all gibberish. They don't understand what they don't understand what you said. So all of these different types of people have to kind of figure out, you know, how they can survive in the world. And they they have to learn to accommodate themselves. They have to learn how to adapt. But if you don't, or if you don't have supportive family, and if you're not a resilient person, imagine what that really does to someone. And it, it, it makes me really sad to think about all of the children that go through school that are expected. You know, you have a school system that basically says, yeah, we're not denying that dyslexia exists. We're just saying that we think that if you try hard enough, you can overcome it. And so we don't, they don't want to give up on you. It's not, it's like they're well-meaning, but it's, their thinking is so flawed and they're doing a lot of emotional and psychological damage to children who are becoming adults, who are, have all these insecurities, who aren't able to, who think, who think they're, they aren't able to, get through school. They think they can't graduate from college. They think college is not for me. And maybe they don't even understand why they think that. Maybe they just think, I'm just not smart enough. And it's not about smart. It's about you, you can't do what you can't do. But if you, if you have a way, which, and as you said, today's assistive technologies today with, with in today's world, with the internet and with the ability to have text read aloud and I listen to audiobooks all the time. Anyone should be able to, if it's just for you know, a matter of, of dyslexia, anyone should be able to get through school and you know navigate through that and overcome this. But they might not even recognize this because it's almost something that in school is not even talked about. So can you tell us what are some of the ways, take us back to your childhood. What what was your experience like and how did you overcome it? T- kind of take us through your childhood and how you progressed to where you were able to thrive and okay. get past that. I started having problems in the first grade and either the first grade the first time or the first grade the second time because, of course, the failing, that's what we need to do. This was apparently one of the strategies. But I started failing in the first grade because... 
I couldn't read like everyone else. My mom took me to the local university for a psychological evaluation. I think they must have thought I was mentally deficient. So had a psychological and the psychologist said, no, mental ability is not the problem. And he's got good mental ability. So there were, he said, we're sure he'll learn, he will learn how to read. Something will click and he'll learn how to read. That was the beginning of a struggle that went on for 18 years. Uh, mom, that's, and actually that's, that's what I call the false narrative. The, the story that says he will learn how to read. I still see, hear teachers tell students that, tell parents that, that we can teach them how to read because we've got terrific programs. And that's what happened for me. And it was a pretty miserable time for 18 years. So I've got a lot of emotion about it and bad habits, <laughs> behaviors that my therapist says that were needed at that time. I needed those behaviors then. Well, I fixed the problems with dyslexia after 18 years when I was actually the way that happened is that I was I went to the reading clinic every summer to to improve my reading skills and when I got into college I continued to go to the reading clinic I had a math major completed but I couldn't pass a class that required reading I failed English composition three times in American history twice so I'm I managed to flunk out. Actually, I took my rule was don't take a class that requires reading unless you've already flunked it because I could do the math. You always got the better grade and you lost the other grade. And if one F cancels and I get the other F, it doesn't change my GPA. So I managed to stay in college for a few years, even though I had not passed a class that required reading. But I had a, I actually, a friend of mine and I went to Mexico on a motorcycle, had nine flat tires coming back. We were late getting registered. And in a weak moment, I signed up for another class that required reading. That caused me to flunk out. I, I went to work on the river and did well, loved it out on the river, worked on towboats, got a tankerman's license got a license to become a pilot, but I wanted to be able to read. So I said, this is the, this is the part that's hard to, hard to believe for me to just think about because it's logical. So I said, I'm out on the river doing well, but I want to go back to college. I want to learn how to read. I said, okay, I'm going to go back. This time I'm going to take reading full time for a semester, all day work on reading. Make up for all those times I didn't take my book home, times that I didn't try hard enough. That's that was the logic. It makes it's logical. <laughs> the only thing is, it's based on the false narrative. The narrative, like you said, you you can you tell people they can do it. Well, you know, that was what happened. I kept trying and went back, and then after a semester of that with Doctor Hunt, the 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 person in charge, he had been, I'd been working with him for a number of years in the clinic there. He was working on teaching me how to read. After a semester of that, he said, he, he asked to meet with me and he said, Mike, this is not going to work. You're going to have to come up with something else. Well, the, it was like the rug was pulled out from under me. Even Dr. Hunt is, is not with me anymore. So I was adrift. 
I had had signed up for a public speaking class. I was had always done public speaking. It went well. However, when I got to the class, it was an advanced class, and it required a transcript of your talk. So I said, oh my, what am I going to do? Can't spell, can't write. I complained about that. And a friend of mine said, well, Mike said, listen, why don't you deliver your speech? I'll write it out and you can turn that in for a transcript. I said, okay, that's my friend Debbie. So I did that and did well on the in the class. Later, I was called to come down and meet with an English teacher, the, the chairman of the department, because she had seen that speech, the written, the transcript. So I thought, I know what that's about. She was one of the people who flunked me. <laughs> so she, I, I said, I know what that's about. She saw the speech and she said, I know this guy. He can't write like this. <laughs> but she called me in and laid the speech out and said, what's, what's this? So I told her exactly what it was. She said, well, I know you from class. I remember you did well in class, and I was so surprised when you didn't pass the essay, at the, the final essay, which was required. So we talked a little more, and she said, I think we need to do something different. She said, uh, what I'd like to do is have you sign up for English Comp again, but this time, when it's time to do your essays, do it like you're doing your, your, your transcripts. Have Debbie write them out. So that's what I did made an A in, in English comp. So that was that was the turning point. That was the time I could I I, I didn't I was I, I couldn't keep using the false narrative because Dr. Hunt told me this is not going to work. So I did that. Then I still had classes that required reading. What was I going to do about those? Now I remembered something my mom had said years ago and it was that she said, Mike, your problem is not being able to read the book. She said, why don't you take your textbook up to Dottie James, a friend of ours who loved to read. She said, Dottie will read the book for you. I said, oh, no, I can't do that. If I do that, I'll never learn to read. And I didn't do it. But now what have I got to lose? So I thought Dottie wasn't available then. She had passed. She had died since then. But I thought I, I will ask Debbie if she will record some parts of books for me and re record a chapter in the textbook for me. She agreed. I got set up in the basement of the library in a reel-to-reel -reel tape deck. Debbie would come in and thread up the tapes and record a chapter. I'd come in later, and at that time, I called it listening to the chapter. I now call it reading by listening, and then go to class. Um, it was an earth science class, and after four or five weeks, I'm going, I'm knocking the top out of the class, and I'm going, college is easy when you can read the book. <laughs> so that's some of my story about what happened for me. Yeah. You know, I really, I love that story. And I, I, the reason I love it is I, I love how you overcame that. And it makes me really sad at the same time, because just thinking of there, there's really no telling how many people are in this world who have gone through that same experience, but did not 
didn't have the resources that you had, that didn't have all the right people fall in the right place. That, that instructor at that school, she changed your life by doing that. She recognized it. What a wonderful teacher, instructor. She, I love teachers like that because they think outside the box. They don't, they're not stuck in this one rut that says everyone has to be exactly the same. We have to all do the same thing. And you're not going to be, you're not successful if you don't look like your neighbor. You know, we, we're all different and we can all be successful in different ways and success looks different for different people. So that story is amazing. And that's why I wanted you to share it. But then also you have developed an app to help children who are, or anyone who is wanting to learn and, and is struggling with, with reading. Can you tell everybody about this app that you developed? Uh, Yes, be glad to. It's called Audio Exam and it is a, an app that will let a teacher, well, first, I guess I need to back up and talk about read aloud testing. And that is a, a, an accommodation that people need sometimes for, for, so they can show what they know on tests. Typically, the way that's done is the teacher will say, come on over, Billy, sit down here. I'm going to read your test to you. Or they'll call them out of class. Or when there's a lot of testing being done, I've heard stories of everybody's testing the reading test for the kid, including the janitor. Hooray for the janitor, along with everybody else. But it's a huge responsibility for teachers, and it's something needed for students. But the way we're doing it typically is problematic. It's it's I personally I use I use read aloud for testing, and it's it's difficult because you. You have to, if you think about it, and the way you read a test, you will read a question. You may jump down and read the third choice and think maybe that's it, but then you'll go ahead and read the whole thing. There's a strategy to that. That's very difficult to do when you've got a person there who's 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 overworked and trying to get through this just to give you the minimum. So I said, well, there's got to be a better way. And so the better way is this app that uh, that I've created, and it's been on the App Store since 2011. And what that what this app does is lets a teacher take, say, a 20 minute, a 20 question quiz, record that one time. It takes about seven minutes for a person to record a, say, a 20 question multiple choice quiz. When they're finished with it, they can hit a button and it goes to the cloud. A student can be somewhere in the building, actually can be somewhere anywhere in the world, and download that quiz, have it appear on their device, and then they can they can read the question, that is, play it and hear the question being read. They can move back and forth in the question, read it over, read it as many times as they want to. They can speed it up, slow it down. And the teacher has only spent seven minutes recording it. The student can use the use it. We can use it with as many students as we need to. And students can have more control over reading their tests for themselves. 
instead of feeling like they have to have somebody come in and read it to them. So that's the... Yeah, and then I would think that would cause added pressure too in that setting. Somebody's sitting there reading and then you're you're almost having to perform in front of them. It's like you're taking the test right in front of someone and feeling this extra pressure of them like waiting for you to answer the question and you don't want to act like you're struggling. And so that would remove that whole dynamic as well. That's a good point. Exactly. So that's a contribution I'm trying to make to the whole situation to get people, get students so they are reading fluently, reading by listening fluently. I think, it, it, you know, in thinking about it, it's it's hard to understand why this would be such a big deal in this day and age. Why would it be such, you know, technology the way it is? Why why does it bother teachers so much or the, this, the school system in general? You know, why does it bother them so much that that there might be some children that reading in, a, in the traditional sense is just is not it does not work for them. But cause, like you said, if you if if you if you can't see if you don't have your sight, then you can't be expected. You cannot be expected to to learn to read in that traditional sense. But but they just can't accept that there could be another barrier. Yes. I guess. Well, and there's we've we've really come a, a long way since I was in school because when I was in school. There wasn't a there wasn't a term called dyslexia or learning disability or special ed. So we've come a long way. When it comes to students and reading, we're to me we've not gone far enough. In that, as you as you said, people are don't understand that students need to do it. Some students need to do it a different way. We're still and one of the big things that is keeping us from moving in the direction that would have students reading fluently by listening is mentioned the false narrative. The it's it's the you you were saying that people don't understand dyslexia, but and part of that is they believe the false narrative. They believe that students with dyslexia can learn to read. They can because we've got terrific programs and we do have some terrific programs that will help students read. But the research shows that students cannot well, I guess one. Let's see if I can quote Sally Shea. What she's the one of the main researchers on dyslexia, and the quote that I remember is: "No one has figured out how to overcome the lack of fluency." As a consequence, for children and adults with dyslexia, instead of it being rapid and automatic, reading is slow and effortful. So the research shows. It's clear on that. And she, Sally Shaywitz says in her book, we can teach them to to read accurately. That is to be able to sound out words, but not fluently. I think what happens is that in, in, in programming for students, when we discover they've got a disability, we are quick to, to come in to, to help them. And we want to help them in every way we can, but we think that the way to help them is to teach them how to read, and we think we're going to be able to teach them how to read. I say that there's the, the problem is, to me, is the, what I call the half-truth and the false narrative. And the half-truth is when as soon as a student is diagnosed, the reading specialist will meet with them and they'll tell them about the terrific programs and how well they work. And they'll say, your child is going to learn how to read, even though they've got dyslexia. What the reading specialist 
is will say is we can teach your child to read. That is, we can teach them to sound out words. And over year, over the years, they'll get better and better at sounding out words. And eventually, they'll get so they can sound out all words. That's the that's what this reading specialist means. But the parent does. But they don't explain that. They don't say that the research shows that reading remains effortful for the brightest people with histories of dyslexia. They don't tell them that. So what does a parent think? Parents thinks, my child's going to learn how to read. That's good news. That means they're going to be able to read like everyone else. But that's not going to happen. Yeah. And if you put that expectation on them, you're just going to put them in a setting where their self-esteem is going to be torn down and they're going to just, they're going to just feel like they're not good enough and they're going to focus on that as opposed to focusing all of the on all of the great things about them and what they can do and focusing on what they can do and what their strengths are instead of focusing so much on a weakness which everyone has weaknesses when you have this this situation where the pub, the the school system the way it's set up and it's been this it's been the same since its infancy it's that's just the way the school system has always been they they believe in, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if if you're not, they, they, they think everyone should be able to do those basic fundamental things, and yet you have to teach that to everyone. And if the, a child doesn't, if a child resists that in some way, they're lazy, they don't want to do it. And the, to the child, the child knows that they're not lazy. They So to them, if they're thinking in, the, in their mind, I know I tr- I'm trying, so I'm not lazy. They think I'm lazy. I know I'm just really not smart enough to be able to do it. Is what they think yeah, in their mind. I think so. I think also the, I mean, actually the lazy part for me, it rings a bell, <laughs> Tina. That's one of the things, the messages that I, I got was I didn't, I wasn't trying hard enough and, and it was my fault. Really, that's the part of it. I, I was, I, I'm reminded of a time I observed a teacher. And I, I spent years working with students in the school system, and I did, when they'd be identified, then I'd do evaluations and I'd start teaching them how to use audiobooks and so forth. I got a referral and was at a school, and a teacher wanted me to see another student read, this, a student who's had, had a reading problem. I, I rem- this is hard to tell. The teacher was standing over the student and saying, now, okay, read this, and prompting the student to read the next word and okay, and saying things like, okay, now, now you know that word. You know that. You, you, you read that for me yesterday. You know that word. And the kid is struggling. And I, and I guess the part, it gets back to this idea of learn, knowing the true nature of dyslexia. I feel like I saw I saw what that kid was experiencing. That kid did not know that word. The kid might have known, got the word yesterday, might have guessed it yesterday. But right now, when the student is looking at that at that set of letters, he's not doing like you said, immediately popping out what the meaning of it is, what the word is. So. That's the kind of pain that kids go through is when there's somebody's there telling them they can do it when the reality is they cannot do it. That's the that's a hard thing. 
to to live with day after day in school when when you when people tell you you can do something but you really can't and after a while you get to believing it you get to believing that you're not trying hard enough that's the problem so it's it's hard to to realize that that's happening but that is happening I work in family practice, and of course, for our audience, that's a lot of what we see, you know, or we deal with is nurse practitioners and PAs that see patients. For, in your opinion, from a family practice standpoint, is there anything that we should be looking for or try to recognize? I, obviously, a lot of this is going to occur in the schools that we're not in directly involved with, but is there anything that we can do in the clinic side to screen, look for, anything like that to try to help catch this before it gets to that college point? Well, probably the, the main thing is to understand more about what dyslexia is and that it's uh, that's probably the biggest thing to understand that it's that people will, and and people will hide it uh it's sh- because it it's shameful for people that experience it it's you it one people are ashamed of it that they can't read like others now are you thinking of adults or children or both just, just kind of in general i mean i was i was more thinking children but but yeah just kind of in general well, I tell you, it's hard. It's hard to be hard to diagnose because there are conditions where people don't read adequately that may or may not have to do with dyslexia. Well, and I guess from the way I was looking at it, in my from my perspective, would be you know we see kids who come in and their parents bring them in and say, well, they're having trouble in school, and so then we'll do you know an ADHD screening on them or things of that nature. And so then is this child potentially getting misdiagnosed with ADHD and getting put on medication when in fact there's actually something else like dyslexia going on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So your setting again, tell me more about what that setting is. So I work family practice. So I see patients from birth to the elderly and very, very much like a family physician would. Uh And then I see patients, I prescribe medications, order labs, things of that nature. Okay. Okay. I see. Yeah. So you'd have an opportunity to see and get the backstory and of what's going on in the family. And, and yeah, I guess that probably the biggest thing that I could think of here is if you're seeing a student who, or a person who's got good verbal ability and has got good comprehension, then you should expect that that person can use print in the same way. So, for instance, well, a, a, you know, a kind of a quick screening here would be to, for, for writing, would be to see if the kid can tell you a story and then, then ask the student to take a pencil and, and write down part of the story and see if that, that can be done. By the same token, you could, a light screening would be to ask the student to bring, have one of their books, their school books and ask them to read from that book. And then another sample would be for you to read a paragraph from that book and ask them to tell you what it said, what it was about. I usually say, what's it about and what it say, to see if they can tell you the what the paragraph was about, and then if they can give you any details. So that's a, a kind of a light. If you get to suspecting something, that's something I could suggest. Now, for writing, I, there's a couple of stories I guess I'd tell you about, or th- that about how that I talk with people about sometimes, and it's that 
if you've got a kid that can tell a great story around the dining room table, you've got a kid that can write a story. But people don't think that's writing. If you, for instance, tell him, okay, it was a great story. Now I want you to record this. Or I want you to use, take your, get your phone out, put it in uh, uh, voice memo mode or, it, well, either voice memo mode to record it, actually. Or you can go right into dictation mode and dictate the story and then turn that in as your paper the next day. That's the kind of thing that can be done. If we get, if you get a person who can do that and they've not been diagnosed, they may be a person who's um, an undi- have dyslexia but undiagnosed. I often ask people if they use audiobooks for adults, you know, and, and, and a lot of times they're, oh, yeah, I like audiobooks. But, but do they read books? Visually, they don't read books because it's such a labor. And it's not, I, I, it's not, books are not written for you to sound out words as you go along. That's not, it's supposed to be language. It has to flow. It has to be, it has to be done rapidly and automatically, as Sally Shaywitz says. Yeah, when you think about it, when you read, you don't, you don't actually sit there and read one word at a time. Your mind almost absorbs two, three words at this at the, at at once as you're just kind of flowing through a sentence. I read, I like to read books, but I also love audiobooks. When I discovered audiobooks, my reading went out the window because I was just like, this is so much better. I love to listen to people tell stories, I, especially if they're really good at it. And I love British accents. So the if I can find a a good book with a British accent, I'm just like, I'll just listen to that. I get you get the best of all the worlds to me. <laughs> but yeah, that's it makes sense if 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 you if you have someone that you can teach them to sound out words and so therefore you think well you should be able to read because you can sound out words, well you might be able to sound out each word, but that's not necessarily reading because if and I think people just take it for granted. I think if you can do it, it's something you take for granted. I mean, you can't make somebody's pancreas make insulin. <laughs> You can't just go try harder. You're, you know, you've got a kid who has, who has juvenile diabetes, type one diabetes. And, you know, then somebody brings their eight year old in there and they're just like, something's happened. Like she's like, she's peeing all the time. And we don't know what's, what's, what's wrong. She's something's off here. And then you're just like, oh, okay. These symptoms are kind of sounding like, hmm. So you run some tests and you're like, well, we're thinking that your daughter might have diabetes, type 1 diabetes. And that means your pan- her pancreas, unfortunately, and it's a congenital condition. It's You're just born like that. And your pancreas doesn't work. You can get another, you know, you can get a pancreas transplant at some point, possibly, if you're really, 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 really lucky and want to risk that. But other than that, you're just going to have to take insulin. And thank goodness we have that technology or we would have a lot of people who would die, right? I love the fact about the blind person and, and, and teaching them Braille. I use this analogy a lot, you know, with insulin and the pancreas, because I feel like people can understand that and relating it to mental health issues with depression and anxiety. And like, you can't will yourself to fix a part of your body that just for whatever reason, there's something just not quite wired the way it's supposed to be. No, I, I use that analogy 
all the time with the exact same thing with depression, you know, because patients say, well, I, I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to take these depression medications or these anxiety medications. And I say, well, would you say that if you were diabetic? Well, no. I'm like, well, this is, this condition is no different than diabetes other than it's affecting a different part of the body. Yeah. Well, the, the speed issue here is something I guess will be mentioned a couple things. Well, one is you're talking about when you read, you don't, Sounds like you you don't look at words, or you look at words, but you're not thinking about words. That's the thing. You're doing it so fast. It is because it as as it's been said, it's rapid and automatic. It becomes you don't think about it. And I I guess example for me, I'm I'm a pretty slow reader, and but I can read push and pull. And I can spell push and pull. Let's see, I think I can. Yeah. But when I walk, just give you an example of the speed issue, how important it is to have speed. When I walk up to a door where it's got push and pull, as I'm walking up, I can't process that fast enough to know what to do. So I just walk up and push and pull and (laughs) go through the door. So that's an example, I guess, of, of how, how important the speed is in reading. When you're, of course, when you're reading long passages, you need to be able to read the entire sentence and have it all held in your brain so you can look at it and think about it and before you go on to the next sentence. So it's, speed is the important factor that people don't see in the reading problem. Yeah, that is. It's fascinating. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You are working on developing a podcast as well, um, right, Mike? I'm thinking about it. You're helping me out here to give me a chance to get figure out how to get the <laughs> kind of get your feet. Yeah. Are you, is it going to be along this line? Do you think, or what? What kind of subject matter? Well, oh yeah, it would be about, about it would be about dyslexia and accommodations. That's the area that I I work in, and uh, yes. That's what that'd be. I think that would be really a, a great topic for a podcast. And I think the, a lot of people, that, there are a lot of people out, people out there, I know there are a lot of parents who have children with dyslexia that when you're, when you're a parent, you do, you struggle so much with knowing the right, you don't know what the right thing to do is. Are you, is it the right thing? Especially if you have a professional tell you, no, he can definitely read. Just keep trying. He'll do it. Well, then as the parent, you don't want to be irresponsible and not listen to the professional. So you think you're supposed to push your child to do this. And then 20 years later, they're grown. And you look back and you go, was it right? Did I do the wrong thing? Because now they can maybe sound out words, sort of, but not even enough to be able to get through school. But look what we've done to his self-esteem or her self-esteem. And is it worth the damage? Yes, that's the right word, Tina, damage. Students with dyslexia come to school with good abilities, but research shows that after they start school, they experience declines in vocabulary, IQ, and general knowledge. We believe this is because they're not reading like the other students. They're not reading as much. They're not reading as many words. And that's important. Research shows that reading is where children acquire most of their new words. Let's think about it. If your child is only reading 20% of the words in a day as the other students, they're missing out on a lot of reading, 80%. They're missing out on a lot of words. They're missing out on 80% of the opportunity for growing that vocabulary, as well as their general knowledge and mental ability. 
It doesn't have to be that way. We can't change the neurological makeup of our children with dyslexia, but we can change the way we see them and their problems. We could have a new vision for that first grader with dyslexia. Instead of seeing a child who's about to start, start a long, difficult journey, struggling to overcome a disability, we could see a child with two small, fixable problems, sounding out and spelling words. We could rejoice that like poor vision is corrected with glasses, our child's poor ability for sounding out words can be corrected with reading by listening, and their poor ability for remembering how to spell words can be corrected with writing by speaking. I tell parents, instead of telling your child you can learn to sound out and spell words like everyone else, tell them the truth and tell them you'll fix that problem at the get-go so they'll read and write along with their friends. Say to them, you're smart. You can read better with your ears than your eyes, and you're going to you're going to learn like everyone else. Tell them they won't have to miss out on any class activities, won't get stuck or behind in class because they can't keep up with reading and writing assignments, because they'll be reading at 250 to 350 words per minute and writing as fast as they can speak. Tell them, you may have to be at the bottom of the class for sounding out and spelling words, but you could be at the top of the class for science, social studies, reading, writing, and learning. Remember, you can't change your child's neurological makeup, but you can change the way you expect them to function in the classroom. And take it from me, that can change their life forever. Tina, now we can stop that damage by giving them another option to go along with their slow visual reading so they can stay caught up with others in class and in life. That's what's at stake. Uh, students with dyslexia start school with good abilities, but research shows that after they start school, they experience declines in vocabulary, IQ, and general knowledge. Well, we believe that's because they don't read enough. They don't read as much as other students do. And that's important because research also shows that reading is where children acquire most of their new words. So think about it. If your child is only reading 20% of the words in a day as the other students, then they're missing out on a lot of reading. 80% they're missing out on. They're missing out on 80% of the opportunities to grow that vocabulary, as well as their general knowledge and mental ability. It doesn't have to be that way. We can't change the neurological makeup of our children with dyslexia, but we can change the way we see them and see their problem. We could have a new vision for that first grader with dyslexia. Instead of seeing a child who is about to start a long, difficult journey struggling to overcome a disability, we could see a child with two small, fixable problems, sounding out and spelling words. We could rejoice that like poor vision is corrected with glasses, our child with poor ability for sounding out and spelling words can be corrected with reading by listening. And their poor ability for remembering how to spell words can be corrected with writing by speaking. As I tell parents, instead of saying to your child, you can learn to sound out and spell words like everyone else. Tell them the truth and tell them that you'll fix that problem from the get-go so they'll be able to read and write along with their friends. Say, you're smart, you read better with your ears than your eyes, and you're going to learn like everyone else. 
Tell them they won't miss out on class activities, won't get stuck or behind the class trying to keep up with reading or writing activities because they'll be reading at 250 to 350 words per minute, reading by listening. And they'll be writing by speaking as fast as they can speak. Tell them you may have to be at the bottom of the class when it comes to sounding out and spelling words, but you could be at the top of the class for science, social studies, reading, writing, and learning. Remember, you can't change the neurological makeup of your child, but you can change the way you expect them to function in the classroom. And take it from me, that can change their life forever. That's what's at stake. If you guys know of some someone that's struggling with this and you want to see, the app is called Audio Exam, and it's on the App Store, and I believe they're working on an upgraded version of it that's going to do all kinds of fancy yes. stuff. It'll, it'll, it'll run on, <laughs> it'll be available on most all platforms, the new one. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's really exciting. If you guys have any questions about it, you can send me an email at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And you can also find me on social media at goodnursebadnurse and tell them where they can find you and well, Tom. If you're looking for Tom and I, I don't know why, but if you are, we're at justsomepodcast.com or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. And also we'll continue to monitor on all social media platforms. Great. Pleased to meet you, Ben awesome. and Tina. Good to see you. Yeah. You too, sir. Thank you. All right. Well, I guess we'll see you next time. And oh, I guess I need to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.